Luke chapter 23, I'll read the first five verses. We've just concluded the Jewish element of the trial of Jesus Christ, the primary Jewish element, as far as they're concerned. His testimony to them has confirmed that he is a blasphemer and deserving of death. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow, we found this one, perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that, as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Again, let's ask God's help. Father, will you grant mercy and grace to us now that we might indeed see Christ Jesus in such a way as to stir our hearts to love and to adore and to wonder and to praise, to grasp what it means to walk in the footsteps of a crucified Messiah bearing our cross. Lord, hear us, bless us, teach us for Christ's sake. Amen. This is Pilate, part one. The trial between, uh, in which Jesus Christ is now involved involves, first of all, the Jews, and then this sequence in which Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, deals with him twice, and in between sends him off to Herod. And in this way, Psalm 2 is being fulfilled. The nation, the Jewish people together with the nations of the world, uh, the, uh, the Sanhedrin and now Pilate and with him Herod. They are all gathering together against the Lord's anointed. And you see in something uh, of this the, the experience of David. For example, in Psalm 35 and verse 11, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. And also we've, we've read in James of the experience of the prophets. Christ being the great prophet now enters even more deeply into the experience through which some of his servants first went. So, for example, in Jeremiah 38 and verse 4, the princes went to the king, Please, let this man be put to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. What Christ undergoes then has been shadowed out in some measure by those who have gone before him. 
As we come to this first part of the trial before Pilate, Luke compresses what is taking place. Now we'll have cause at one or two points to turn to John's Gospel in particular to give us a bigger sense of what's actually happening because Luke gets it down to these five intense moments of interaction and we need to, to, as it were, step back a little bit and to understand some of what lies behind these questions and these answers. But again, we have this remarkable demonstration of Christ's confidence in God. He is the centre of the storm and he is calmness itself. He is truth personified. Around him swirl lies and hatred, but he stands, his identity clear and his innocence being emphasised. You see, the Lord Jesus knows who he is. And the Lord Jesus knows his relationship both to God and to men. And as we see him interacting with the Sanhedrin and and then with Pilate, you and I need to ask, well, do they understand who Jesus is? Do they know who, what relation he sustains to God and to men? And beyond that, you need to ask, do I know? Do I know who this Jesus is? Do I understand what it means for him to be the Messiah of God? Now, as we work our way through these sections of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, the applications on one level are simply this. Behold the man. To some extent... I do certainly want you to understand, as we've just been singing, your sufferings I embrace with you. Peter would later tell us that we are to take Jesus Christ as our example of the man who, when he was reviled, did not revile again. That as the sheep before its shearers was silent and did not open its mouth, so Christ and so those who follow Christ, when they are being falsely accused, and assaulted in this way. There are then points at which it's right for us to say, this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Remember the urgency and the intensity with which he approached this experience on the road up to Jerusalem. Remember how often he urged us through the words recorded by Luke to live lives of faith to be marked out as people who judge time in the light of eternity, who make their decisions constantly in anticipation of the great judgment that is coming, to remember that God sees all that is taking place in every heart. And there was a sense, perhaps even of pressure there, a sense even of burden. But my friends, if Christ had not so lived, then he would have buckled before now. Here is the man who lives in time in the light of eternity. Here is the man whose every word and whose every step is influenced by his profound and perfect consciousness that he is living before God in the light of the holiness and the justice and the mercy of the great Lord. That's all there. But I don't want to get so bogged down in follow Jesus that you lose sight of Jesus Christ himself. 
I want us as we hit some of these painful passages to be gazing upon the Christ of God and to trust him and to love him, to wonder at him as well as to follow him. And so we trace his path as the whole multitude of them, the whole Sanhedrin arose and led Jesus to Pilate. Again, you may remember the language of Psalm 22, this twisted accusation that now follows. There David, speaking of the experience through which he was passing, said, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. In verse 16, Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That is what is beginning to happen to our Lord now. Bellowing bulls and baying dogs are surrounding him. The antagonism, the hatred, the venom, and it's now with an air of desperation. There's a unity of enmity that begins to build around our Lord Jesus Christ. Hatred holds together the hearts of all his enemies. It shows itself in a twisted accusation there in verse 2. Then it leads to a plain question from Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Christ gives a careful answer, makes a, a, receives then from Pilate a clear declaration, which leads to a fierce response. These then are, are the way that Luke compresses down this part of the trial into these five intense and terse interactions. The twisted accusation, the the. The antagonism builds towards the crescendo of the cross. These Jews believe that Jesus is a blasphemer. He has made himself God. He has claimed to be equal with God. And in their minds, that means the death sentence. But the Jews are a people who are not free to impose that sentence for themselves. They are under Roman rule. And so if Jesus is to die, they need to incriminate him in terms of the Roman law. They need Pilate to pass the death sentence. And so the way that they approach Pilate shows their intent. They present the evidence in such a way as to provoke Pilate to the highest degree. Now, that may be because Pilate and Caesar, the, the, the Roman emperor back in Rome aren't on the best of terms. There is some historical evidence uh, that Pilate was, uh, was not always in favour with Caesar. And so they're pushing this in such a way as to effectively to say to Pilate, if you're really a friend of Caesar, you need to take care of this. And they weave into their accusations just enough truth to make their lies credible. I'm not trying to teach anybody to lie, but that's the best way to lie. Just enough truth to make it seem credible. Just enough credibility to seem persuasive. And then the lie comes in. Now, it's ironic that they now abandon the religious concern and bring political charges. It's ironic, remember, because these are the people who want a political messiah. And they go to Pilate 
and they heap the pressure on him and they say, we've got a man who is perverting the nation. He's misleading this whole country for which you are responsible. He's agitating the people and he's doing it in these two particular ways. First of all, he's forbidding them to pay taxes to Caesar. That's a clever lie. You go back a few chapters and you remember that the, uh, the Sanhedrin themselves went to Christ and said, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And what did he say? You give to God what belongs to God and you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And they're taking that and they're saying, here's a man who said that we should keep things from Caesar for God. He's telling us that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Now that is not what Christ said. But it rings well in the ears of Pilate. And then a second charge. He's saying that he himself is a king. So not only is he now resisting the taxes that Caesar's imposed, but he's setting himself up as a rival to Caesar. And again, you can go back, for example, to chapter 19 and verse 37, where Christ comes up through the Mount of Olives. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they sang. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees said teacher rebuke your disciples and he answered and said I tell you that if these should keep silent the stones would immediately cry out they attacked him for this and now they're quite happy to say that that's what he claimed and so they set this Jesus of Nazareth up as some dangerous Christ king the focal point of Jewish rebellion against Roman law. A man who's been fomenting political agitation, saying, don't pay Caesar his taxes. I will be your king. Now, there was one point where the Jews got close to crowning Christ as a political king. It was just after he'd fed the 5,000. He'd been healing people. And it's quite possible that some of the zealots in the crowd thought, you know, if we're going to have a king who's going to overthrow the Roman yoke, what better than a king who can heal all wounds and diseases? What better than a king who can feed an army out of one small bag of food? And the Lord Jesus, perceiving that they wanted to take him by force and make him that kind of a king, walked away and hid himself from them. Because he never was such a king. And the Pharisees have now taken these things and with false witness and slander, they presented Christ as a, as a, a king in rebellion against Caesar. The irony being that if he had accepted that, that's just what they wanted. They want to overthrow the Roman rule. They want a military leader. And yet they're accusing Christ of being the very thing that they secretly desire. It is worth remembering that false witness and slander have always been and will always remain the devil's favourite weapon. Christ suffered these kinds of abusive lies and so will you if you follow Jesus Christ. Remember how he described our adversary he is a liar and he is the father of it. And when we follow Christ, there will be times when our reputations are trampled upon, when our character is slandered, 
because the devil loves to use these things to pull down not just Christ, but those who follow him. This is his typical MO, his modus operandi. This is the way he works. We found this one, perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, you would imagine that this would capture the attention of the Roman governor. And it does. Pilate seizes on this question of kingship and asks the Lord Jesus a plain question. And the emphasis lies in his identification of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's difficult for us to know in precisely what tone that question might have been asked. Remember what our Lord has already been going through and remember who he is. He is a prophet from Nazareth. He is a man who dresses very simply in the typical clothing of the time. He is a man who has just been captured by a mob in the garden, having been sweating great drops of blood as he has prayed to his father. He is a man who has been through a night of abuse at the hands of the Sanhedrin. They've already been putting a bag over his head, blindfolding him and beating him around the face with their fists, saying, prophesy, who is it who struck you? There is nothing about Jesus of Nazareth that identifies him as the kind of military agitator that the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, are presenting him to be. And it may then be that there's bewilderment, there's incredulity, unbelief, maybe even ridicule in Pilate's voice as he looks upon this man. Are you the king of the Jews? Really? You're, you're, the, you're the problem? You're the one that we're dealing with? This battered, bloodied figure? You're the resistance fighter that I'm supposed to be worried about? This is where John is helpful. If you want to, you can turn over to John's Gospel in chapter 18 or just listen as I read because John records a little bit more about what happens between Pilate and Jesus at this point. This is 1833 of John. Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Where did you get this language? What do you think it means? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. That's what lies behind what's going on here in Luke chapter 23. Are you the king of the Jews? And you see the difficulty. What's the answer politically? 
Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Is he a great military leader who has risen up to overthrow Roman rule in Judea? Not at all. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Is he God's appointed leader of this people? The king of David's line who has come to throw off not a Roman yoke but a satanic one so that all who trust in him should be liberated and brought out of darkness into his light and under his rule. Emphatically, yes. And Pilate's plain question is difficult because the question that Jesus put to him is still relevant. Who told you that? What do you think it means? And that's why our Lord gives such a careful answer. He answered him and said, it is as you say. It's that John 18 language. You have said this. It's very much like the answer he gave to the Jews when they said, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. In each case, the problem seems to be that they're using the right words in the wrong sense. Sometimes we talk, don't we, about people talking past each other. We're all using the same vocabulary, but we're not understanding one another. This is a heightened example of that. Are you the son of God? They don't understand what it means for Jesus of Nazareth to be the son of God. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's asking that question entirely on the wrong level. And Christ's answer seems to communicate, you've said those words, do you understand those words? We might ask the same when we're singing our hymns. You're singing those words. Do you understand those words? When we're reading our Bibles, you're speaking those words. Do you understand those words? Maybe we're talking in religious conversation. Maybe we're saying, oh yes, Jesus, he's the son of God. He's the son of man. Do we understand the weight and significance of our language? Again, what John records helps us to understand why Jesus responds the way that he does. If he says to Pilate, I'm not the king of the Jews, he's lying with regard to his spiritual identity because he is the king of the Jews. If he says to Pilate that he is the king of the Jews, Pilate's going to assume that he means that he is some kind of uh, Roman bogeyman and that he's going to lead a campaign against Caesar's rule. And so the Lord Jesus said, those are the right words. Do you know what you're talking about? That's what you're saying. Do you understand what you say? It's not that our Lord is being ambiguous. It's not that he's being non-committal. Into his very response, he's weaving a challenge to Pilate. And so Luke, fourthly, cuts to the chase. The first interaction, that twisted accusation. The second one, the question of Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? The third statement, our Lord's response, you say it. Pilate's clear declaration. And bear in mind that this isn't the way that trials work if you read the whole transcript. Luke's carrying you from statement to statement. The key interactions, the most important things. And here's the summary of the trial before Pilate at this stage. I find no fault in this man. In John's language, I find no fault in him at all. 
And my friends, this is only the first time that Pilate is going to say this. You can drop down to verse 14 when he comes back before Pilate. You brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. Indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. And then down in verse 22, crucify him, they're shouting. The third time he says, why, what evil has he done i have found no reason for death in him i will therefore chastise him and let him go three plain declarations of innocence it's as if pilate shouts three times before the world no guilt no guilt no guilt there is no fault in this man at all there is no evil in this man there is not a charge that you have brought that can stick upon him whatever else is said and done at this moment Pilate reaches this conclusion very quickly and Luke wants us to understand Pilate's conclusion He's exposing the emptiness of these charges. He is emphasizing the fact that this Jesus, and remember that the the man for whom he's writing these things, he's hearing, as we do today, all kinds of lies and suggestions and half-truths. No, says Luke, listen to what was said even by Pilate himself, a man renowned. A man renowned for not being particularly honest. Pilate himself says three times, no guilt. Luke's not saying, because Pilate's not typically honest, you should listen to him. What he's saying is, remember Roman justice. Roman justice was famed across the Roman world for its impartiality. You boys and girls, what does justice look like in Roman statues? Is that the one with the woman holding the scales and the sword? Okay, she's got scales in one hand. She's got a sword in the other. The scales are for balancing truth. The sword is for administering punishment to those who deserve it. What else is notable about justice? She's blindfolded. She is blindfolded. She doesn't look on things as they appear to be. She deals in truth. She weighs things impartially and she brings down judgments upon those who deserve it. And Luke's saying that Pilate actually is showing integrity here. Yes, he buckles eventually. But even a man who is renowned for not dealing righteously three times declares the righteousness of Jesus of Nazareth. In the Roman court, even Pilate is obliged to say, no guilt, no fault, no evil. What's the problem? That's not the right answer. Not for the Sanhedrin. They were the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. (coughs) Have you ever been in a situation where everything in you just wants to cry out, but that's not fair? 
I'm being falsely accused. It's not fair. And perhaps then you go to the second phase of your distress and resentment. There's nothing that I can say to you that's going to change your mind. You've already decided that I'm guilty. You've already concluded that I deserve to be condemned. And nothing that I can bring before you is going to, for one moment, change your mind or open up the possibility that I might just be innocent. And that's the kind of spirit that's now governing these Jews. Their concern is not a fair trial. Their appetite is not for a righteous outcome. They have got the scent of blood in their nostrils. Here are those baying bulls, those bellowing bulls, those snapping dogs. They have Jesus surrounded and hounded. And they basically say to Pilate, that's not what you're meant to say. You're meant to take the bait. You're meant to condemn this man out of hand. This is mob justice now. This is the baying crowd. It seems that there are more than the just the Sanhedrin who are gathering around at this point. And it's urgent and it's fierce. They might as well have said, look, we hate this man. And we will not stop accusing him until you give in and grant us what we want, which is his blood. Now, Pilate is saying he's innocent. There's no charge. There's no guilt. There's no evil in him. And the response is, in effect, we don't care. We want him dead. And at this point, it starts sounding so petty, doesn't it? So desperate. He's stirring up the people. He's teaching them all over the place. I mean, that is desperate, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, not, that's not a very credible charge, is it? He, he's teaching them everywhere. Come on. Surely you can do a little bit better than that. But there's fury here. There's blind rage. He's, he's whipping up a storm. It's vague. It's indefinite. But it's desperate. He's teaching them all through Judea, beginning from Galilee, even to this place. And at that point, it may be that Pilate thinks, ooh, I can get a breather here. Why? Because Herod's in town. And Herod's a Galilean. And maybe, depending on what you think of Pilate, this is the shoulder-sloping moment. Well, maybe if I can just foist him off onto Herod, I can give myself a bit of space. Maybe we can get Herod to deal with this. It, it may be his cowardice, or it may be that he's, he's just thinking that this is the, the easiest way to conduct the process. But what I want you to see, in the midst of all these fierce accusations, in the midst of all these lies, in the midst of all these, these questions, in the midst of all this confusion, is a man who is legally... Personally, politically, morally, spiritually innocent. No guilt. No guilt. No guilt. Why doesn't he say something? Have you been falsely accused? Have you tried to shut your mouth? Have you tried to bite your lip? boys and girls if maybe if a brother or a sister treats you unfairly do you just grin and bear it if your dad or your mum jumps to the wrong conclusion do you submit without question 
Perhaps you're at work and somebody says that you've done something that you haven't done or that you haven't done something that you should have done, but you did it. Which of us sits there and says, I will take it on the chin? We have an instinct, don't we, for fairness. We can't bear the idea that someone shouldn't treat us as we don't deserve to be treated or treats us as we don't deserve to be treated. Why then is Christ saying so little? Why is he merely affirming in these scant words an underlying sense? Why doesn't he say something? Why doesn't he resist? Why is he submitting? As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. My friends, this is the kind of self-control that only trust in God can breed. This is the kind of restraint of a man who, when he is reviled, does not revile again. All the way along this process, he could have called upon legions of angels to come down and deliver him from the mob in the garden. When he declares his divine identity, they fall to the ground in terror. There'll come a point where even on the cross they will mock him and scorn him. He saved others himself he cannot save. Why does he go? Why does he walk like this? Why does he hold his tongue? Because he is the sin bearer. Because he is obedient to his father. Remember the language that he's used over and over again, the language of necessity, the language of must, the language of holy obligation. I cannot save my people unless I stand in their place, take their sins upon me and die instead of them. It is obedience to God and obedience for you, Christian that carries Jesus in this submissive silence through phase after phase of false accusation and brutality. If he buckles, if he backs down, if he lies, if he steps into the wrong role, then we are not saved. The sure-footedness of Christ's humble obedience we say don't we we don't do well under pressure we don't think clearly we don't speak what we want to here is Christ not a kind of inhuman self-control but a man who prayed in the garden not my will but yours and who goes through these things accused forsaken slandered, assaulted and ultimately pierced on the cross in order that he might save his people from their sins. Do you care? Do you care? As you read these horrors, remember that when we get to what we call the passion narrative the the narrative the history of the sufferings of Jesus Christ Luke in common with Matthew and with Mark 
and with John, they zero in on these last few days and then in particular these last few hours and it seems as if the closer that you get to the moment of Christ's death on the cross, the more the slowing down of time in the record occurs so that you are seeing these things almost in slow motion, passing you by these key details being picked out. What does that do to your soul? Does it at all engage your heart? Do you see here Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Saviour of sinners, suffering and dying for your sins? My friends, does it matter to you? Does it bother you? Does it distress you? Does it engage you? When you look upon this man, is your heart drawn out toward him? When you trace some of the elements of these sufferings, when you you feel the heaped up weight, I know we're doing it week by week, but for him this is moment by moment. There is no respite. There is no relief. There is only this hatred, only this antagonism, only these assaults, only these accusations, only these bruises, only these blows, only these whips, only these scourges, only this crown of thorns. The cross is laid upon his back. He goes up to Calvary and there he is nailed to the tree and dropped naked into the ground before the eye of his accusers as the darkness gathers over him and as he feels the full weight of sin descend upon him what does your faith see does it see the lamb of god who is slain for sinners like me and you i want you to see a man that you can trust i want you to see a man that you must Love. I want you to see a saviour at whose salvation you wonder. And I want you to see a true king whom you can follow. You will never go to the depths of darkness and misery through which he passed. But this is the way that the master went. And this is the way that the servant must go. Amen.